As you're being seated, I invite you to find a Bible, if you will, and turn to the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. During the month of July, we'll be looking at some pivotal texts in the book of Romans, pivotal texts that teach us who we are, pivotal texts that teach us who God is and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. One of those texts is found in Romans chapter 6, and I'll begin reading at verse 12. And the title for what I want to speak with you this morning about is simply the word freedom. So, Romans chapter 6, I'll begin reading at verse 12. The Apostle Paul says to the Christians in Rome and to us, Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free, set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, so what, so what advantage did you then get from the things of which you now are ashamed? The end of those things is death, but now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the Word of God. Would you pray with me? God, in these moments, we pray that you will overwhelm each one of us with a sense of your great, great loving kindness toward us with a sense of all that you have done for us, especially what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And God, may we be open to receive all that you want to do in our lives. We pray, O God, that you'll give each one of us ears to hear what you're saying to us today. Amen.
on July the 4th, 1776 in Philadelphia, a group of 56 men adopted on behalf of the colonies a document that they entitled the Unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America. When those 56 men signed that document, they were risking their livelihoods, they were risking their lives. They knew that what they were doing was treason in the eyes of the government. They knew that if caught, they would be hanged by the neck till dead. When they signed that document, they were going against the crown, going against the British Empire, deciding that the crown, the British Empire, had become too authoritarian, deciding that the British Empire was too much, taxing them without representation. Taxes were decided upon them and sent to them, and the only choice they were given was to pay those taxes. When those 56 men signed what we call the Declaration of Independence, they were risking their livelihoods and they were risking their very lives. Three of those signers of the Declaration of Independence were from the colony of North Carolina. Three of those signers risked their lives and their livelihood when they signed on behalf of the citizens of this colony. You may know, I hope you know, that two of those signers of the Declaration of Independence, William Cooper and John Penn, are both buried in Guilford County. They're both buried at the Guilford Battleground. When I look at all three of those who signed the Declaration of Independence from the state of North Carolina, one of the things I'm mindful of, and we all should be mindful of, not a one of those three lived to their 50th birthday. Even though they came from privilege, even though they came from comfort, I believe it was the stress of that season, the stress of that era, that made sure that not one of the three saw their 50th birthday. Those were hard, hard times, and I think sometimes we forget that. We romanticize the period of the American Revolution. When you looked at the colonists during the American Revolution, about a third of the colonists supported the revolution. About a third of the colonists remained loyal to the king, and about a third of the colonists weren't really sure what to do. And that was a very difficult time because communities and families were split between being loyal to the monarch and believing that we should be a free and independent nation. Most of us in this room, we know the name Benjamin Franklin, but I want to make sure you know the name William Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, of course, spent two decades as our envoy to England in St. James Court, but eventually he had to return to the colonies as we became more and more rebellious. And Benjamin Franklin, of course, threw his influence on the side of the rebellion, the revolution. But Benjamin Franklin had a son named William. William was the royal governor of the colony of New Jersey. 
and he was on the other side. When Benjamin Franklin came back to the colonies after two decades serving as an envoy in England, he went to see his son William in the colony of New Jersey, trying to convince William to come on the side of the Patriots. William was not convinced. Benjamin Franklin did not see his son again. His son stayed in the colonies throughout the course of the Revolutionary War. Of course, on the side, the Loyalists, on the side of England and the King George III. And then after the war, William Franklin went into self-imposed exile in England, never returning to his native land. So there was Benjamin Franklin, William Franklin, torn apart because of that season through which they were going. I'm, I'm glad, and I suspect all of you are glad this morning, that those original patriots, that third of, that third of the colonies, decided that they wanted to be free and independent from an authoritarian government 3,000 miles away. I'm glad that, that they were willing to take a stand to risk their lives and livelihood. None of us like conflict. I'm sure those 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence did not like conflict or debate even, but they were not so conflict avoidant that they wouldn't stand up for what they truly believed was right. So I hope as you celebrate Independence Day on Tuesday, it will be more than a family gathering. It will be more than a cookout for you. I hope that you will reflect on what has gotten us to this date. I'm one of those that still firmly believes that God had a unique hand in the establishing of this nation. Like most of our American ancestors, our forefathers, our foremothers, we believe that God had a unique plan for the establishment of this nation on this continent. Like many of our forefathers and foremothers, they, they would quote the Bible and they would say something like, we are called to be a city set upon a hill. When, when those patriots decided to stand up for freedom and independence, they were doing something at that point in history that was completely unknown around the world. But they risk everything to do that. I, I still believe God's got his hand on our nation, but I also believe that if we continue to turn our backs on God, God will, God will remove his favor from us. We can see so many ways in the history of this land how God has providentially guided us, as our forefathers and our foremothers have said. I think about July the 4th, 1826, exactly on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died exactly on the 50th anniversary of their work with the Declaration of Independence. John Adams died in Quincy, Massachusetts, and he said, as his last words, Thomas Jefferson survives. He didn't realize that Thomas Jefferson had just died a few hours earlier in Monticello, Virginia. In so many ways, if we're willing to look, we can see the hand of God on the establishment of this nation. So I'm one of those that 
is very, very grateful to be an American. Like most of you, probably many of you, there's blood from those patriots that still flow through our veins. And I hope that we can remember that, particularly on, particularly on Tuesday. Our nation is not perfect. We're working to form a more perfect union. Our nation is not perfect. But I know this to be true. Tammy and I have been blessed to travel, if my count is right, into 14 other nations around this world. And I know how very, very grateful I am when I get to return home from those other nations. I know what it means to me to return home, to go through customs, and to show them an American passport. I could have been born elsewhere, and I'm sure I would love that land too, probably, maybe. But I'm grateful for this nation, and we need to be grateful for all the blood that has been shed, all of the strong, hard backs that have stood up over the years to make this a great nation. We, meet, we need to be careful, full of care, to make sure we keep telling that American story. And we need to be careful, full of care, to make sure that we protect the liberties that are ours. I'm grateful for our nation. I'm very grateful for the freedom that I have as an American. The word freedom is an important word. And most of us in this room, at least this week, know that that word freedom is important to us as Americans. But I hope that you also understand how important that word freedom is in the New Testament. Paul talks about freedom too. He talks about the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. He does that in several of his letters. In Galatians 5.1, the Apostle Paul says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. In Christ we have found freedom. I hope you have found that freedom in Christ. I hope that you understand the extent of the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. The text that I read for you a few moments ago from Romans chapter 6 is probably Paul's most extended conversation about the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. We know, most church folks know, that in Jesus Christ we find forgiveness. In Jesus Christ we find freedom from the guilt of our sin. In Jesus Christ, we're pardoned of our sin, but the Apostle Paul was also adamantly convinced that we can find freedom from the dominion of sin, from the power of sin, the sway of sin, the bondage of sin. Romans 6 says that in Jesus Christ, we experience great, amazing grace and freedom. We can be very freed from the dominion of sin. We, we, we don't have to say, well, that's how I was created. That's how I was born. We don't have to say, well, that's just my nature. That's who I am. We can't even say with, and some of you are old enough to remember this person, we can't even say with the comedian Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. We, we can find freedom we can find freedom from the very dominion of sin. That's what Paul is talking about in this text before us. As Methodists, you know what the Methodist anthem is. It's the anthem that has always been the first anthem in all the collection of hymns we've ever produced. 
Except in 1935, we produced a hymnal, and we were very much in the midst of doctrinal amnesia at that point. But other than 1935, every collection of hymns we've ever produced starts with the same hymn, our Methodist anthem. What is it, church? I'm glad some of you know, oh, for a thousand tongues. Now, it's a little confusing, and our hymnal that we use now is number 57, but you'll notice that's the first hymn in the hymnal. There's other things before you get to hymn 57. But the first hymn is always hymn, the hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues. And in that hymn, every time we sing it, we profess he, talking about Jesus, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Now, we know about canceled sin. We are pardoned. We are forgiven. The guilt is washed away through the blood and the work of Jesus Christ. He breaks the power of canceled sin. But we Methodist types are audacious enough to say he breaks the power of canceled sin. That sin is not still in force in your life. You can make progress as he sets the captive free. John Wesley, Charles Wesley were just quoting the ideas of the Apostle Paul. Under Christ, because of grace, not because of who we are, not because we found the right self-help program, but because of the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be freed from the dominion of sin. Now, we'll all, I believe, we'll all carry our brokenness, some brokenness, some sin, with us to the other side. There's some brokenness in our lives. There's some sin in our lives that only heaven will heal. But from here to there... From this week to next week, we can grow. We can change. We can become more the people that God is calling us to do. We Methodists call it going on to perfection. This is who we are called to be. This is what we can do in Jesus Christ. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Forgiveness and pardon is wonderful. But then we can grow in grace. I hope that you're freer today to be the person God has called you to be than you were this time last week. I hope that when you walk out of this place today, you are more free than you were when you walked in a few moments ago. In Christ, we can find freedom. We are born in bondage. That's core Christian teaching. That's what Paul says in this same section in Romans 6. We are born in bondage. We are born, as John Wesley said, children of wrath. We are born prone to sin. We are born broken. We are born in need of rising above our nature. Every human being shares this condition, which again, you know this, as part of the traditional church, I baptize your babies because they're born into the human world needing Jesus Christ because of who they are, their nature, who they are by creation. Baptism says we all need the cleansing, redeeming, delivering work of Jesus Christ, and it is available to everyone. There's no human being that comes in this world to whom that gift is not available. So that's why I baptize your infants. I'm not sure you know why I baptize your infants. But that's why we baptize infants in our tradition. There is no human being ever born that does not need Jesus. We can't be saved by our creation, our nature, who we are. We can't be saved just because we were born a certain. We have to get above the way we've been born. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner 
free. And by the way, the New Testament, the Old Testament, is pretty clear on what that sin is, how that sin manifests itself in the human life. Because the Old Testament, New Testament is very, very pessimistic about human nature. That's core Christianity. We're very pessimistic about human nature. As a matter of fact, when we were first begun in the Roman Empire, we were called several things by those Romans. One of the things early Christians were called was haters of humanity. Haters of humanity. Because we were negative about human history, about human history and human nature. And we are. We're very pessimistic. We're very realistic. We have no delusions or illusions about human nature. It needs to be redeemed. So we're very realistic about human nature. We're very realistic that we're in this all together. But we're very, very, very optimistic about grace. What grace can do in our lives. He breaks the power he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Just to make sure that you hear it anew, I want to read this text that I read a few moments to you in a more contemporary translation, the New Living Translation, just so that you pick up what Paul is putting down. Here's how it's translated from the Greek into the English in the New Living Translation. Paul says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have a new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer your master, and you live under the freedom of God's grace. Don't you realize that you become a slave? You become a slave of whatever you choose to obey. We're born in bondage. We're born in slavery to self. But he breaks the power of canceled sin. He can set the prisoner free, and we can be freed from bondage to self and become servants, slaves of God. Don't you realize that you become a slave of whatever you choose? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to right living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey his teaching, the teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to right living. For the wages of sin is death, Paul says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the choice placed before us, death or life. To whom would we like to be a slave? Ourself, our sin, our passions, the culture around us, what the people say about us, what the people say to us, or do we want to be sold out completely in servitude to God. Not that it's something we can do, but the, the grace of God working in our lives helps us to change. The grace of God is real. As a matter of fact, it's amazing in regards to what it can do in the human heart and in the human life. Too much of our contemporary worship, in the American church at least, 
in Western European churches is almost a, a mass exercise in group therapy as they're commiserating with one another over the human condition or even sometimes just celebrating the human condition. That is far, far removed from that faith once delivered by the apostles to which we're being called to contend. We can never make too much. We can never make too much of what God has done for us, in us, through the work of Jesus Christ. But we can stop short. I hope that you'll be freer from yourself and your sin when you leave this place than you were when you came in to this place. The greatest freedom in all the world is certainly not a freedom to do as we please. It's certainly not a freedom to live a licentious, sensual life. The greatest freedom in all the world is to be free enough to live as Jesus Christ is calling us. Amen.